We're back here at Local 16. I'm Jared Rizzi, and this is At the Table, a conversation that we have. Some of, some of them I do here at Local 16, which is a great place to, to meet, have a drink, uh, enjoy a little bit of uh, hospitality. That's, of course, one of the things that this conversation is all about, is taking hospitality, putting it back at the center of our politics, because, frankly, most of us, we go through our days, and I really believe this is true, and I think it's, it's why we are where we are politically right now, is that we don't give a damn too much about the other people that we see on a regular basis. And that sucks. That's a terrible way to be, especially if you live in a big, beautiful city like Washington, D.C., where you've got every kind of person all around you all the time. How do you live like that without a little bit of joy, a little bit of love in your heart? And one of the things that, that I was brought up, I, I grew up, as I, I've mentioned many times in this conversation, in a restaurant family, and so I'm constantly thinking, how do I get people... I, I really only know how to show love two ways. I, I hug real big, and I, and I like to feed people. Those are my two love languages. If you ever read the love languages, I make sure to like add like food, because that's, that's really that's all I got. And, and, and for me, that's, that's the center of this conversation. You come out here, you see this red gingham tablecloth. I promise you, it's not people doing the Great British Baking Show. It is me having this conversation, trying to talk about a better politics. Because right now, I feel like... The news is so bad, so hard, so often that we can really get overwhelmed by that. Like we can get to the point where we don't want to talk about the, the things that are really important. And that means that the people who are in power, the people who are enjoying the benefit of the status quo, they win when we feel overextended, when we feel over, you know, overwhelmed and, and underprepared to talk about important issues. One of the reasons why I'm very glad for this conversation, and of course I do a lot of them not here at Local 16, but when we are here at Local 16, that means you can come up and, and have a drink. I, I was asked, there were a bunch of people wandering in here earlier, they were like, are you part of the, the French Conversation Club? I said, no, that's a different event. So if you're here for one of those events, just wander in. I am friendly. I've got a big stack of cards and we'll talk to you and, and hopefully you'll, uh, you'll, you'll enjoy the conversation that you're hearing and that you're a part of. The other thing that I want to mention right out the, out the gate is that the unedited versions of these conversations are available for people who are patrons of the conversation. If you go to Patreon, you can sign up for as little as just a couple bucks a month. You make sure you get the, the uncut version. I try to make sure this is as limited as possible, but sometimes when we get a little, when we get a little too feisty, uh, we get a little too uh, rambunctious. Uh, sometimes when I when I curse too much because things are just that bad, I try to cordon that off into a <laughs> subscriber-only model. And if you decide that you want to be a part of that, not only is it uh, a great way to be a part of the conversation, but it's also a community of people who all tend to give a damn about the same kinds of things. And if that's you, maybe you, you want to do that. One person who you've already heard uh, kind of chuckling along with me as some of this goes on and who I'm very grateful to be able to come down here to Local 16 and join me for tonight is Greg Jackson, who's a National Advocacy Director at Community Justice Action Fund. Greg, thank you so much for spending some time hey, with me. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Let me talk to you a little bit about what you do at Community Justice Action Fund and what you've done in the past. What is the mission here? Because this is an organization that is nationwide and one of the big focuses that you guys talk about is gun violence, which DC is no stranger to that. Right. Yeah, I mean, our, our, our mission is, is fairly simple. It's to make sure that the people that are most impacted um, by gun violence are not just uh, seen as part of the story, but also part of the solutions. Like, how do we empower people who are being impacted to be at the front of the room advocating for 
solutions that benefit them, writing the policy, voting for the right folks, but also saying, hey, this is what a good candidate looks like um, that's going to help us with our issues and our challenges, specifically as it pertains to gun violence, police violence, uh, and criminal justice reform. Well, you mentioned police violence, and that's another big story that I want to talk about. One yeah. of the things that I like to emphasize over and over again is that I have such a such a narrow lens of this conversation. And I think, like, like many people who grew up in a middle-class white family in the suburbs, I did not realize, I had the luxury of not realizing the, the epidemic of police violence for what it was yeah. uh, up until really body cameras and other things and, and really just listening to the people in my community. But, but it, yeah. it, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm guessing that you have not had the luxury of going through your life knowing that this was somebody so that this was this is a problem on paper. Right. I mean, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I grew up in a, a you know, I would say a, a fairly well-off home. Uh, we actually grew up in the outskirts of Charlottesville, Virginia, and then I grew up on a farm, a family farm in Fluvanna County. So, what kind just, of what kind of farm is this? Uh, beef cattle. We have Angus beef cattle uh, in Fluvanna County, mm -hmm. Virginia. Yeah, I love it. Um, so you would just think, like, you know, I'm not really exposed to like the inner city turmoil of, of police violence on, on uh, black folks or people of color. But in my life, I've been in cuffs four different times, um, and you know, it's 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 a it's a very consistent thing when I talk to my friends, like. You know, we are targeted no matter how you look at it. Um, you know, black men are, are targeted, unfortunately, um, for to be interacted with the police and seen as someone who's done something wrong before they've even met us. I remember um, just as a child, you know, my mom would say, you know, don't walk too fast in the store because it looks like you're stealing something. And I was like, don't walk too fast, you know. Yeah. And it, and uh, which is not just not how I you know right. and again and, and so you know my my wife and I are about to have a kid and all I can think of is when I hear these conversations I think I didn't have that yeah yeah and if you have a kid that's you, you that's inescapable that conversation you're probably gonna have to you know and it's, what what a terrible thing to have to pass down for no reason other than that there are a lot of really stupid people out there and a lot yeah. of them wear a badge I remember. Uh, the worst story was when me and my cousin, we were going to get pizza, and uh, we parked outside the pizza store, and we were just talking about life and listening to music before we went in, and about 12 cop cars rolled up on us, guns out, <laughs> and put us in cuffs, you know, and searched the whole car, Jesus because Christ. apparently a store down the street had been broken into the night before, but we're literally parked in front of a pizza store that's open, you know, and we're like, look, we're getting pizza, like, you know, I don't know what description we fit, but... Uh, but we're just... They we're do just that to two Italian kids. They make My Cousin Vinny out of it. They do it to you guys, and they don't even make a movie out of that. <laughs> yeah, anyway, no, no movies. No <laughs> movies. Just, just, a, just a dark night, you know, and you have to kind of move on with life and pretend like that's okay. And it's um, not. And, uh, and I'm glad that the work that you're doing emphasizes that it's not okay. You've also worked with uh, D.C.'s Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement, so you're also, uh, you've been on the front lines for making the, being liaison to the community in that way yeah yeah well well gun violence is very personal to me um in 2013 um unfortunately when i was in dc walking home from a party it's a great party too it was a bachelor party for my little cousin another cousin <laughs> story uh we walked and literally took the all the corner. cousin stories are going to be cordoned all, off for the yeah. uh, patrons only there it is. <laughs> there it is. we can give you the full story of the bachelor party on the patreon version um, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, mean, I got to get some sign off on that. Um, but uh, but yeah, we, were just, we were walking home. and We literally took the wrong turn, and these two guys were arguing, and and uh, you know, and one pulled out a gun and, and shot at us, thinking that we were part of the conflict. I guess he thought maybe we were a backup or something. 
um, and shot me. And so that was, uh, you know, I, I grew up, like I said, I grew up on a farm. We watched a lot of Westerns, John Wayne and all that. So I'm thinking you get shot, it's like, you know, uh, die Ooh. hard. You just shake yeah. it off like, okay, I'm good. You know, let's get back in the fight. But it was not like that at all. Jeez. You know, for me, uh, my recovery took six months. I was in the hospital for 21 days, um, just on and off. And I had to learn how to walk again and how to run again and all off of one, you know, one gunshot wound. And so coming out of that situation, one big two things stood with me. One was this was also the same time that Sandy Hook happened. And sure. I was watching the news, all these children that were lost, you know, to gun violence. And I'm thinking, man, like this has happened to me. This is happening in black communities everywhere. Now we have little kids being shot. Like, you know, something's got to happen. Like Congress is going to do something and nothing happened. No. And I was sitting in the hospital literally just infuriated. You, how could you? And, you, you know? and you're, when you're in those hospital beds, you're stuck. You're stuck. It's all you can watch. Netflix and <laughs> the news and maybe some football every once in a while. So, um, so I, was, I was pissed at that. The other thing that, that stood out to me, though, was uh, a nurse came to me. I had a lot of friends and family who, who came to visit me. And thanks to everybody who came. I really appreciate you guys. But I remember a nurse, she said, you know, you're lucky. You know, you had a lot of support while you were in the hospital. But every day, you know, young men just look just like you come through this hospital. And it's like a revolving door. And no one visits them. And they go right back into the neighborhoods where they were shot. And that stuck with me because now, ever since that happened, every day I'm thinking, like, who else is, is living the same trauma that I lived through? And, and how long is it going to take before, you know, uh, someone does something about it? And so I kind of decided, like, hell, I can't just sit back and watch this like this is my trauma but i know that everyone else is joining this unfortunate uh community of survivors of gun violence and so we got to step up and do something so that's why i've been been so focused on this with the uh, community justice action fund you know i didn't i didn't know that you had that particular timing i knew that because i had looked at you know kind of like oh, you like know online bio or something i yeah. knew that this had happened <laughs> to you but you know you never know the details it's funny because we're here right now in this moment, and I think about where I was in that moment. So I was, as, as you know, I, I was a White House reporter for seven years, and I was a White House reporter when Obama was dealing with a lot of gun violence issues, including Sandy Hook. Actually, the, one of my first pool duty days where I was stuck trailing the president wherever he was going yeah. was the day Gabby Giffords got shot. So that was wow. kind of the beginning of my time. Yeah. And that was rough. And there was literally never one of those stories, whether it was, and it, you know, it's it's not political. I remember Steve Scalise got shot and I cried. You know, it's like, it's not like it's left yeah. or right. But I remember having a conversation with one of my producers, uh, Jenna Wolfson, uh, and, and I remember having this conversation with her after the Dallas police shooting a couple mm -hmm. years back. Mm -hmm. And it was maybe like two in the morning and news was still coming in about how bad this was. And all I could think of was, I'm tired of crying about this. I'm right. tired of, and, and as a journalist, you know, I, and I'm not trying to, this isn't, for people who are hearing this conversation, this isn't me as a dude trying to be like, here's your story, here's my story. This is me trying to say, all I can do, all we can do is, is feel this. Right. And what I, was, what I was unequipped for as a journalist was how much that was affecting me. What I love about what I'm doing right now is that I get to say that out loud and yeah. it helps and it's better. Yeah. But it doesn't get a lot easier because I think as a country we're just not we're just pretending like it doesn't happen. And that ain't, that that's not a healthy way to deal with anything, let alone no. a problem as big and as thorny as gun violence. Right. I mean it's it's not healthy at all, especially when we're losing a hundred thousand plus lives a year. You know, I always joke with people sometimes I'm like you know, if we were losing 100,000 people from measles, like, what, what, would, what would the country do? Well, first you know? of all, just give it time. I mean, the, the anti-vaxxers are going to they're gonna make some <laughs> yeah. progress, I promise you, Greg. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, but even with cars, right? Like, we were having all these people yeah. dying from cars. Like, 
that's when he said, okay, we got to invent some stuff, seatbelts, you know, door-side airbags. Like, all those things were created after the epidemic of death by vehicle or homicide or, or just car crashes. Like, all that stuff was invented after right. it became an epidemic. And now we're, we're dealing with this epidemic of gun violence. But I don't see the same momentum and energy. And, and uh, I think it's growing and building, and it's becoming a priority. But I'm just waiting, like, when are the – the real movers and shakers going to actually make something happen, you know? And 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 the headwinds that you're facing as a community activist, community organizer yeah. who's involved in this are twofold. One, there's a lot of vested interests in making sure nothing happens. Yeah. And, of course, here in Washington, not just on a local level, but on a national level, right, just right, right. a lot of people in Congress on the campaign trail, you know, wherever they are, who just don't want to see anything change because that's that's where they're 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 making a lot of uh, a lot of campaign fundraising. Uh, and the other side of it is that the conversation we do have, and this is something I want to get into you with, with uh, especially, is that the conversation we do have is so unproductive. You, yeah. you see, for example, right-wing talking points that use f cities like Chicago as a punchline. You you see them talk about, uh, even the, the president, talk about places like Baltimore and D.C. as if as if they're vermin-infested. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, the passing of uh, a giant like Elijah Cummings right. and all, and of course it gets, his his legacy gets tarnished with the, you know, the the, the, the cheap words of a small man. You know, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's terrible to me to see the way we talk about gun violence because it all in addition to the you know policy problems right, right. but also there's this issue where we just don't have a good way to uh, a good language because everyone wants the cheap shot the, the easy answer that doesn't exist no. and for a guy who's doing the groundwork I want to know when you hear these crappy arguments Besides rolling your eyes or you know, yeah. kind of turning the other cheek, what's your strategy? Because I get tired of it, and it's not my job full time. Yeah. So how do you deal with it? Because well, you probably hear, you know, these people bug you on Twitter. They bug oh, you yeah. at Thanksgiving or whatever. You know, the, yeah. you've got an uncle. You know, like right, right. Some, I somebody. Do. <laughs> some I do. Shout out to cousin story. <laughs> cousin stories and uncle stories will yeah. be patroned off. I promise. <laughs> no, um, you know, I think the big thing is that people are quick to try to politicize this. In the end of the day, it's, it's people's lives that are being lost. And if you start from there and say, how do we save lives? There's so many different ways to reduce violence that no matter where you stand politically, no matter which right or left side of the spectrum you're on, there is some tactic that has not been employed that you could actually stand behind and be supportive of. You know, you might not want you know stronger measures on uh, on actual firearms, right? You may not want to uh, ban assault weapons, but you do care if someone in the hospital has someone there to support them. To, to keep them from retaliating, and that's hospital-based intervention. So there's just so many different tactics that, that are just, unfortunately, people are just kind of naive to. Um, another big thing that we do is, is family and survivor support. So when I was shot, when I came out of the hospital, you'd have thought I like just fell off a ladder or something. There was no other support beyond some victim services financial support. Because I was a victim of a violent crime, they would give me financial support, but there was no recommendations for uh, for uh, uh, therapy. No psychological was, no, or any... No, there's no, like, big organization rallying around it, like breast cancer or, like, domestic violence or all these other traumatic ways of that people yeah. suffer violence. There's this huge movement and this huge pool of resources and support for survivors of that. But when you survive gun violence, none of that exists. And so that's a huge thing that we could invest in and start working on because people... That boggles my mind. I did oh, not know God. that. It's, and, it's, and that boggles rough. my mind. And you look at the... Like I said, 100,000 people are shot... I'm sorry, are, are die a year from gun-related homicides. I think it's over 500,000 are shot a year. 
Um, in D.C. alone, it's over 500 shot a year. Think about all that trauma, all those families, whether they lost someone or not, all those individuals that survived and everything they're going through and know that all they have is what, like a bandage and a paycheck, like a little reimbursement check for their bills, like that's what they get. And so if we really care about this issue, that's another thing that we can just focus on, like how do we provide more support services for survivors of gun violence, just like we do our veterans, just like we do someone who survived domestic violence. Like why don't we invest in making sure they you know, transition back into society in a proper and a valuable way. So what I always try to do when folks get all kind of crazy about this and politicize it, it's like, look, you know, no matter where you stand, if you really understood how comprehensive the approach is to reduce gun violence is, you can find something that matches where you stand. You know, I grew up hunting. I grew up on a farm. My dad had 26 guns. You know, I'm a... It's I a have, lot of guns, yeah. It's a lot, but, you know, we just farm <laughs> with them. You know, we just hunt with them. So it was not... It's not like we were out there, you know, blazing up stuff. We shoot trees, you know. <laughs> it's trees, deer, maybe rabbits every once in a while. You know, but, um, but for them, like for my family, you know, hunting is a big part of our culture. And it's also seen as like a bonding, just like fishing. Sure. It was never thought of like, I need a gun to kill someone, right? And so I get it. A lot of people have those type of connections that don't see how guns are traumatizing, you know, hundreds of thousands of families in inner cities and communities of color and and a lot of these mass shooting situations. And that's okay if they don't understand, but they can't just dismiss that it's a problem. They gotta say, well, here are some alternative solutions. And fortunately, a lot of them do exist. Um, so I always, that's the conversation I have with folks every time. And it's really hard for them to combat that. Because if they wanna go hard on the gun piece, we can talk about it. If they wanna go hard on, you know, how this is a, a problem. Guns don't hurt people, people hurt people. Well, what are you doing to help people that have, yeah. that have hurt somebody, right? The problem that I have is because because of the, the the cynical time that I spent doing the job that I was doing for so long, yeah. is you say something like, how do we save lives? I know that there's a big percentage of the population, especially the voting population, that doesn't want to save lives. Mm. They're not interested in saving lives. And they're especially not interested, and maybe this is uncharitable for me to say, but I, I really believe this, they're especially uninterested in saving lives of people of color. Because they believe that, you know, you hear these talking, again, terrible talking points like black on black crime or these things right. that, these things that, you know, I don't even know who concocted it in a radio, talk radio studio like 40 years ago, but they, it, it's really stuck and people st still perpetuate this garbage. And I am flabbergasted that people are like, well, no, it's happening to people who, and, and, and the thing that they don't say is who deserve it or mm. the people who, and that's that's the unspoken part of this. Yeah. And I think, it, it, yeah. especially in a conversation where you're you're talking about why we don't do more, the reason people and we you know look you know urban urban or whatever you know whatever euphemism you're using for this yeah. conversation, you're talking about lives of people of color, right. and and the 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 person who doesn't care about this issue probably cares less because they don't value those lives as much as they do other lives. I, 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 I'm not saying anything you've never heard before, no, no, I, but I, I just feel like it needs to be said. And, and you know, I, I, I just, it, it, it bothers me to say it because I don't believe it and it's a shitty argument, but yeah. I feel like we can't, we can't dance around that. We can't, we can't. And I think what's also scary is that while pe people may not be like overtly oppressive in their language and what they're doing now, a lot of the institutions and a lot of the systems that are in place that are continuing the cycle of gun violence in our communities were set in place, you know, decades ago. And people are, are naive enough to not even see them for what they are. You know, I look at my neighborhood, for example, I can't find a gun store in my neighborhood, right? 
but we we have business opportunity first of all. Hey, you know, I mean, because it's it's hard. Like I live in Southeast DC, and it is hard to find a gun store and find someone that's legally selling you guns in that right. part of town. But that's also where the highest concentration of gun violence is. I mean, we when I was working with the Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement. We actually caught a kid selling a gun on Instagram. He's 10 years old. Oh One, I don't even know if you can get on Instagram at 10 legally, if you're supposed to be. But if you are on there, how can you be selling a gun and you're, you know, like, but that's how easy it is to get guns in these neighborhoods. And it's not necessarily that, you know, the communities of color are out here, you know, some big mission hunts to traffic guns. No, a lot of that stuff is very easy to get a hold of. You can drive yeah. 15 minutes down the street, buy a gun, no questions asked. And bring it right into any. Well, and you, you said want. you grew up in rural Virginia, where a oh lot of these gosh. guns are being, you know, sold yeah. without any paperwork, without an. I mean, Virginia's yeah. rampant for this. And so there's just no, there's no accountability behind behind the retailers in the gun industry, and that's the huge, huge problem. I mean, talk about the shield law. You're talking oh about gosh, any yeah. any any liability yeah. for the the, even, the atrocities that are committed with these weapons. Yeah, even back to like how they marketed guns. You know, if you think about it, uh, there's a really good book called Gunfight. I encourage everybody to read it. Um, but basically goes through the history of guns in America. And one big thing they, they, they pointed, I'll never forget, is that they hit a point where they had saturated the market of white men of, as far as who they could sell guns to. The hunters of the world had already had them. They already had 10, 12. Like everyone, everyone had their guns. Right. But the markets they had not touched was the lady market or women's market and the youth market. And I don't know why the youth would even be a market. But that's when they actually introduced the magazines, like the gun gun related magazines next to, you know, your your other kind of magazines in the corner stores and CVSs and stuff. Those type of magazines they introduced gun magazines. Yeah, you're not way. you're not talking about a magazine for ammunition. You're right. talking about a magazine with yeah. glossy ads right. and, glossy and ads. photos, right. yeah. Because they put it right next to the comic books and they knew like, hey, this is where kids <laughs> will buy things and this is where they learn Spider -Man, about Spider-Man, good housekeeping, yeah. garden and gun. Wait a minute. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and everything else you shouldn't look at is right there. You know, car magazines and, and so they also shortened the names of these guns and made it simpler, AR fifteen and you know, make it Desert Eagle. Start throwing animal names in there. Make it kind of cool and more appealing to, to younger people. I've never been cool, so this is yeah, all, you yeah. know, it's, it's <laughs> all like, very strange to me. That was an entire marketing strategy of the gun industry. And the things like that, you know, we, we a lot of times we don't see it, we don't know, but that's those type of those movements that well, people happen. don't realize they're being marketed to. I mean, oh that's the that's right. the, no matter what. Like you're like, oh, why am I drinking this drink yeah. right now? I, anyone who's in that industry knows exactly why you're drinking right. that drink right now. But we stepped up as Americans and cracked down on cigarettes, right? Right. We cracked down on tobacco and how it was marketing to people, but we haven't done the same thing with guns. And as much as I hate the argument that like, you know, guns or you know, video games market guns, I don't think video games is necessarily the reason why. Uh, gun violence is happening, but we should also be mindful of like how many guns are being promoted in youth-oriented games. Because again, that is kind of you know subconscious marketing. And cool. So yeah, it's what's cool. That. Yeah, you wouldn't let you know. Uh, Fortnite wouldn't be running around with cigarettes all over the place. People would get outraged by that, right? If they, <laughs> Sorry. You know, you know, it's funny because I think I think, and, and I'm a video game person, so I it's funny. I, I really, I, like I said, I've never been cool, uh, but I so I, I like video games, and I always have have pushed back on the idea that that guns uh, have any real connection. But you make such a good point that we wouldn't allow. We wouldn't. Uh, you know, we really uh, care. We wouldn't. Uh, the cigarettes. The cigarettes is such a perfect example. You, you mentioned the the different kinds of markets, and when you mentioned your dad owning these guns earlier, I 
I want to talk about, and I, th this is this is not meant to be a, a conversation. This is not a, a colloquy on race, but I am thinking about the the way in which you've just described two central problems: one, that gun manufacturers needed a new market, and white men had already bought up everything; and two, you grew up in a home where you know you, your your dad had a certain amount of guns. And I'm thinking about the the stories of the the Philando Castiles of the world, where the NRA yeah. is not necessarily uh, advocating for. Right legal gun ownership in the same with the same aggressiveness right. that they necessarily would when you're talking about in a city like Washington DC or when you talk about the work you do for community justice action fund around the country y you don't i'm guessing see the same kind of presence of gun advocacy when the shooter when when the person who's using the gun is black no not or at when the person who's hit by the gun is black not at all. Not on either side, you know. And um, and I think that's that's telling in itself. I mean, if you look at like the history of, <laughs> sorry, yeah, got a guest joining us. No, um, you know, it's like everything's Halloween decorated in here yeah. right now. This is, gives you a sense of where we are. And by the way, we're at local sixteen where we've got a, a table. You know, it, everything like everything is really spooky. So it's kind of it really undermines the gravity of this conversation <laughs> because there's like you know skulls like, dangling yeah. and like bats. It clown. Uh, yeah, it's a, but it's a great movie, by the way. But, but <laughs> I heard the second one wasn't very, or the the new uh, one. I like the second. I don't know. I'm not a horror movie. Again, I've never I'm been above. cool. I have a shirt that says, "I'd rather be watching scary movies right now." <laughs> It's Halloween, baby. It's, it's Halloween time. Okay, so I have a whole group of friends that I want to introduce you to okay, after, please, please. because they love them, and I. It's like. You know when you you love people so dearly, and I'm thinking about two yeah. friends in particular right now, and then you know that just there's this one thing you just have zero in common, and they, every time they go to a scary movie, yeah. I'm like, I got nothing to say I to you because I'm a sissy and I can't watch anything. <laughs> like I'm like I'm like I can't even. It's too scary. No, yeah. I don't want it. No, why would I do that? Uh, <laughs> the, uh, you don't want it to get you. <laughs> stop it. That's, that's messed up, man. Uh, no. That, okay, so I'm gonna introduce you to some friends of mine because a they're cool. You're cool and I think they'll get along and B I need someone to be the intermediary and maybe if, if I bring I you into you. this conversation okay thank you <laughs> you got my okay well we were talking about sorry. a serious problem oh yeah sorry which is no that's fine people wander in some of them are drunk and I just we just roll with it at this point <laughs> the serious problem is and I and I and this is it's a question not a statement yeah. when you're responding to the problem of gun violence do you see Advocacy groups like the NRA react differently when either the shooter or the victim are black or people of color. Because for me, I think about you know when when uh, the, again the, the Philando Castile problem or you know yeah. there's there's a dozen other names that are less well known that are that are in similar positions. I think about the woman in in Texas who just a couple weeks ago shot yeah. in her home. I mean the, these are people who uh, yep. uh, these are people who just there's there's no reason we were talking about and I know that some of the portfolio of work at Community Justice Action Fund is criminal justice reform and some of the other things that you guys yeah. are doing. There doesn't. We need to redo the book on police violence for sure. But let let's talk about this advocacy organization. Yeah. The, the, when 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 people of color are the owners of guns, is it different? When people of color are the victims of gun violence, is it different from your perspective as a advocacy director? Yeah, I mean very much so. And I mean I think, um, you know, I, with organizations like the NRA, you hear silence. You know, you hear silence or they or they leverage it for political purposes, but it's never 
the same level of empathy. They're not out here fighting on behalf of, of survivors of gun violence. And I think, um, especially in communities of color, and it's, it's a tragedy, man. And I think that's also what is, 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 is troubling, too, in the media, where whenever there's a mass shooting, you see you know, news coverage for days. And there should be news coverage for days. But you also see, you know, in Jamaica, Queens, where they had eight people shot over the course of eight days within, you know, the small sub-neighborhood and, you know, no national coverage. That no neighborhood focus. torn apart because torn apart. everyone Rabbit. has to know yeah. some, of, some of the people that were impacted by this. Right. Like this. And um, it's, 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 it's really frustrating. And there's also, like, I remember there was a, uh, in the Midwest, there was a young lady who was shot um, and, uh, she, and killed. And it was really sad. She was a volleyball player in college and it became CNN news and I was like you know that was a terrible thing but then I'm looking like how many kids have been shot in southeast DC in Chicago in New York in these neighborhoods that never even graze you know regional news they, they never make it outside their county and I, I, I could see how it could be depressing to hear these stories over and over again but these stories do need to be told like people are going through very traumatic situations we're literally watching you know we saw an, an, uh, a 10 year old get killed by an adult at a McDonald's a few weeks ago, you know, shot down by an adult. And that was, that barely made it outside of DC news. And to me, that's one of the most tragic, frustrating things. And this kid actually helped organize a stop the violence rally two weeks before he was murdered at a McDonald's parking lot. And this was targeted, you know? And so those stories and the people who are hurt by that, I went to the, the vigil for that. And just to see hundreds of people and families just you know, torn apart and traumatized by a child in their community who's trying to do the right thing and trying to push for what's right to literally be uh, murdered. It's like, and for that to not matter, you know, from a media standpoint right. and from a national advocacy standpoint, is is it causes so much insult to injury and it, it kind of reinforces the feeling of you know this will never change or how can we look to our government to change things when when this is happening um, every day. And so um, that's I mean honestly that's a big focus of what the Community Justice Action Fund is about is like, how do we make sure those stories are told and the people that are impacted in those ways are also a part of the conversation and are also advocating and are also pushing for solutions because I mean, it's not even that, that, that organizations are acting differently towards their stories. It's like they're just neglecting the story altogether. And I don't know what hurts more. When, when you talked about coming out of the hospital and not having psychological resources I think now about the work that you're doing. Yeah. And my first thought is I'm hearing you describe this one story that I knew from headlines. Right. But I'm hearing you describe it and I'm realizing that you probably know a lot of the people. Like when you go to this vigil, you probably know so many of these people personally because they go to things that you like you're a part of this community in, in, in yeah. an intimate way. And I think to myself, like, I know people, for example, who are, you know, aid workers that go to Sudan or, right. or they go to Syria or whatever. They make sure that they have psychological resources. And I think about what you just described. Can you talk about the toll? Because, look, I know that you're not... I know it's harder for the people who's who are directly affected by the violence, but as two men who are sitting, again, one of the things I try to do in this conversation is I, I always say that if you're going to make the mistake of having a straight white dude have this conversation, let me lance the boil of toxic masculinity a little bit by saying, look, let's talk about the vulnerability yeah. here. Yeah. And you know, I know that the cops might think that you're a big tough black guy, but I think that you can probably talk a little bit about the vulnerability side of this, which is. 
I can't even imagine what it's like to know this kid or to know the the people who were at this vigil and then see the kid get shot a couple of days later. That's just I can't I can't I can't put that into words. And I and, and I would yeah. ask you to. I mean, it's um, it's 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 a it's a scary fe- it's an eerie feeling, you know. And what's funny is that the feeling isn't that different. So I went to um, Las Vegas to their vigil for the um, anniversary of the Las Vegas shooting. This is about two years uh, ago now at yeah. this point. So I was there for that, and I, I know a few of the survivors there because it does become this community that you're a part of, and you, you build friends in it in an odd way, in your own <laughs> what trauma a, what your a me- What a messed up. I mean, that's just, I it mean, is. that's the country we live in, but and, that's messed um, up. And I met the, the, the young lady who, who was there. I met her, her first event, Speaking Out, was where we met and stuff. And so I saw her again in Vegas and she, you know, invited me to the vigil and I saw this pain and that pain is the same, was the same feeling of pain as what I saw in Southeast DC at Stanton Elementary School when that young, young boy was shot and they were all coming together. And it's, it's weird. There's like, there's, there's two different vibes to it. One is that there's just dark pain and frustration of loss and trauma. But then there's so many people who just, seem like they're used to it. And that's what really bothers me, you know? Like, when we went to the elementary school, for example, all the adults are torn up, the family's torn up, and people are upset. But I know the little boys that were friends with him, they were all one friend group who I I mentor with and stuff sometimes. And I took them out golfing and hang out with them and stuff and play football with them. So I come out there to the vigil, and they got a football, and they're just playing football. And I'm like... Are y'all okay, you know? And I could tell that they... These are 10-year-old boys. Yeah, these 10, 12-year-old boys in elementary school. And they don't... I could tell that they don't understand how to, how to process right. their trauma. No. You know, for them... How could they? You know, it's, it's not manly to cry. So they're not going to stand there and cry. You know, they're not going to stand there. They, they're not, you know, outspoken enough to actually give a speech or, or write a right. poem necessarily. Uh, luckily, a couple of them did give some really heartfelt speeches. But they don't know. They don't know how to deal with this. You know, it's, this is such a foreign thing to them. It's emotionally, right? But unfortunately, it happens to them so consistently. Like, imagine having to go through trauma you don't know how to deal with and having to go through that over and over again. And I'm literally watching these I, guys, I can't. You know, and it's... it's I can't. Uh, it, is, it is one of the darkest things that you can ever be a part of. And, you know, here I am in tears with these kids. And, you know, and all they want to do is say, Mr. Greg, you want to throw the football again? <laughs> and I'm like, sure, man. Like, <laughs> that's what it takes. Like, let's, yeah, let's no. play some ball, you know? But, like... But then having to pull them aside and talk to them a little bit, and once they start going to those memories, you see them starting to cope with their own trauma. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, no one in the community is sitting down with them and talking about that. So they have to grow up hardened by this this loss in their life, and that just that's a terrible thing to take away from a kid. It is that innocence that 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 because. And again, I, I, I've talked about this. My wife is five and a half months pregnant. I think a lot about raising a kid in the district. I want to make sure that we give this kid every opportunity. But, you know, look, there's, I live in Ward 4, you know. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, it's, there's, there's not a lot of gun violence in Ward 4, but there's enough. You know, it's, it's, uh, there, there's, a, there's enough. And I think about it, and it's scary. But I can't imagine put, putting that, that grain of sand into, into a kid's heart and hoping that there's something that, you know, that is beautiful that comes around it. Cause some people do make beautiful things out of trauma. Yeah. That doesn't happen to everybody. And I, and I, I think you're asking a lot of people of human resilience to, yeah. and I think about, you know, bringing any kid into this world, let alone one that I'm going to be attached to. And I'm thinking this is, it's, it's really scary stuff. And, yeah. and fortunately it's, it's way more common than you think, you know, um, the story I was sharing was from this year. Last summer, we lost uh, a 
five-year-old who was going to the ice cream truck and was shot. Her mama just gave her the money. Um, sorry, she's not five years, but she's she was um, I think she was ten actually. But her mother gave her five dollars to go to the um, ice cream truck, and she was shot. You know, and her mother had to come there and grab her. And but you know, I mean, I went out to I met her mom and her aunt and tried to do what I could to be supportive of them. But the the big thing that stuck with me even then was like this happened on the front porch of their house. Yeah, you know they still they still had to live there. That ice cream truck still sounds in that neighborhood. Yeah, and every time that mom hears that ice cream truck, yeah, I'm just thinking about the one in my neighborhood that plays damn Christmas music at right. all I, 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 every, it's in the summer. If something happened at the ice cream truck, I would never forget it because. And, yeah. You, you know which one is in your neighborhood. And that's a moment of joy that was stolen from you, you know? And that's, and again, these all the, you know, not only what she went through, but what her siblings went through, and yeah. all the kids go through. Yeah. And they have to live there every day, you know? And uh, it's, it's so many stories like that. You know, down the street, there was someone who was shot, and the, uh, they were shot beside the corner store and riddled the, this corner store with bullets. That was four years ago. I live in that neighborhood. Those bullet holes are still there today. So everyone who was there for that or impacted by it, they got to walk past that that scene every day and be reminded of that trauma and triggered all over again. And that's what happens so much in these communities. And we, we just we just overlook it. We don't we don't even think about it. You know, we just kind of let it roll off our shoulders when we see it on the news. But that does a heavy toll on people's psyche and a heavy toll on how they operate through life. And so when you think about like gun violence, for example, and how we reduce gun violence, a lot of it is about how do we deal with the root causes of violence and how do we deal with the trauma that surrounds violence in any type of violent situation because one community can go through 20, 30, 40 of those incidents that I just laid out for you and imagine what that does to you. you know? I, I can't imagine it, no. I, and, and I'm glad that you made this pivot because I was about to say one of the things that I try to focus on in these conversations is not just the... Because you and I... I would find it fascinating but sad mm -hmm. to talk to you for hours about stories that you know because I'm sure that you know a lot of terrible stories about these kinds of things. Yeah. And we could probably make the people who are listening to this conversation cry a lot. But my goal is not to make people cry a lot, even though I was crying a minute ago and I know that you've probably cried most <laughs> most months you've been on this job that you've you've got right now. I can't imagine you don't. But I want to talk about the solutions that you just mentioned. You talk about root causes of violence and the trauma in communities. For, for the group Community Justice Action Fund, for your work as a national advocacy director, Greg, what's the, what's the work that you're doing on the ground level? Because, you know, whether it's local stuff here in D.C. or nationwide, what's the agenda? Because when I see this, again, you talk about the irresponsibility of media. I'm glad that we're having this conversation. But in a five-minute TV interview, we're not getting to the nitty and gritty. Nobody's yeah. talking about that depth. And so if people have listened this far, I'm glad that they are. But I also am glad that we get to talk about the positive side, which is what can we do about it? What are you doing about it, actually, yeah. day in and day out? Well, I mean, first of all, I just want to pay homage to all the people who are on the ground every day. Fortunately, uh, unfortunately and unfortunately, I guess, you do. my work now, because it is more national, I'm not on the ground in the communities every day, but there are a lot of organizations that are. And my focus is on making sure they're getting the funding and the resources it's and that those job. solutions are, are being incorporated into policy and legislation that's created nationally as well. And I think there's a few models I would always encourage people to look at. So um, and in D.C. and Richmond, California, 
Um, the DC Office of Neighborhood Safety and the Office of Neighborhood Safety in Richmond, California, both have these programs uh, in DC is called Pathways, where they focus on people who've had a, a previous violent criminal offense. Because if you look at the statistics- Someone who's committed an offense. Yeah, committed offense, and are now you know, back in society. And if you look at the statistics, most uh, gun-related homicides in inner cities happen for someone who already has a previous offense. You know, one thing we always remind people is that it's less than 2% of the population typically is responsible for upwards of 80% of the gun violence in a neighborhood or in a city. And so knowing that, it's a very small targeted number of people right. that you know may be the previous offender or may be the previous the future survivor. This is a minority be, report. Right. This is, you know, you don't need, yeah. you know, you don't, you, you don't precognition. You don't, you, yeah. you know, this you is, this, focus you in. know who we're talking yeah. about. And so what both of these cities are doing is actually not just, you know, targeting them with policing and enforcement and containment. It's like, how do we target them with, race, with resources and investment and help them figure out, okay, how do you find a job? How do you get the mental health support you need? How yeah. do you find housing? How do you get your health together? How do you get off the streets? How do you get out of this lifestyle that may push you back into a violent cycle? And it's been extremely effective. And so that is a, a program that I think people should look to and see and say, hey, you know, actually if we invest in life as opposed to paying for death, how big of a change would that make? We also ask people really up front, especially at the city level, like, how much does a homicide cost your city? You know, in cities like D.C., it's three hundred fifty dollars to $400,000 of cost that goes in, whether it's policing, forensic, hospital bills, um, the victim um, services, the uh, uh, taxes lost, the impact on the neighborhood, the impact on cost of living. All of those sources, when you pull it together, there's a heavy, there's a, there's a dollar sign for death, right? And so if you look at that and say, okay, if we're spending, you know, in D.C., we had 130 homicides and we're spending 400, you know, uh, $400,000 per death, then you can do the math yourself and say, oh, man, that's millions of dollars. Yeah, you're say. talking like 50 million, 60 yeah. million bucks. Yeah. So, so, so what are we doing? Are we investing that much in preventing violence? And that's a direct question to ask. Like, it's cheaper to, to prevent it. Um, so that's one big thing we asked them to do and to help pay for a lot of these programs. The other thing I would say, there's a lot of great organizations um, there's a great documentary called The Interrupters, um, where uh, it's on, I believe it's on Netflix. It's definitely on YouTube, the trailer and everything. It's on um, iTunes as well. But basically, there's, there are a lot of organizations out there with the Cure Violence model, where they uh, go into neighborhoods and literally do violence interruption work, where they know where the concentration of violence is. They empower and train staff and, and even members of the community to figure out how to de-escalate conflicts. And they do direct violence intervention before things escalate to the level of shooting. It's also highly impactful and very inexpensive to do. The other thing is hospital-based intervention, which we talked a little bit about, um, but that's where you, you know, I know me personally, when I was in the hospital, all I had was uh, pain and vengeance on my mind, you know? And luckily, I had enough sense to not uh, act on the vengeance or tell my buddies to go act on it. But imagine if I didn't have that same patience, if I didn't have that same, you know, if, if I knew if, if it wasn't like a accidental shooting for me, maybe if I knew the guy and he, you know, and that happened, oh, yeah. I might have a whole different mentality. And yes, I'll be the first one to retaliate or the first one to call someone to retaliate. No, so and that. nobody could know until they're in that situation. Yeah. I've been held up at gunpoint. Like you, yeah. you never know how you're, you're going to react. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You, like I thought I was natural. a tough guy yeah. when I got, I got held up. I was, I was in a neighborhood. I, it was like late at night. I walked out. And I, you know, I had a conversation. I walked away. I didn't get harmed. Nobody was harmed. Yeah. I thought I was tough. Next morning, 
I'm vomiting. I'm like, I'm scared out of my mind. I couldn't leave my house for a week. Right. Because you don't realize that even when you do everything so-called right, like even when you pick the yeah. path of nonviolence, your body, your body knows that you almost, that you could yeah. have been killed. Like yeah, every part of you knows that. Yeah. And, that's, and imagine if someone tries to kill you. <laughs> right, like yeah. actually tried to kill you. Like that's that was well, the, the hardest thing for me to 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 really. I'm still having process yet. Like someone literally tried to take yeah. my life, and for me not to, and not even for like a reason. That's right. the that's the messed up part for me yeah. is like it's not like they were like, well, Greg's a jerk, and right. Greg needs to go. Yeah, and so hospital based <laughs> intervention is a really Jesus. important solution because I'm sorry to laugh. Very, but <laughs> no, it's, it's crazy, but that's that, but that's that's a very uh, small window of time to get to somebody before they take action or before they tell someone else to take action. So it's also in a very effective way to reduce violence. That's fascinating. I didn't even think about that. you got to get to these people. You're talking about the psychological, and obviously I'm thinking where you were talking about earlier about you and and kind of the the, the victim's mentality and, like, trying to make sure that you have the resources. But obviously the person, you know, anybody who's, who's done that, like, if you're you're in there and you've you know you, you've you've done yeah you want to get to these people and be like look there's some options here yeah you don't like have to boy, when I was in the hospital one of my boys literally said you want me to go get him <laughs> and I knew and I knew he knew how to do it and yeah, where yeah. to go and he had the resources and all it all it, I said no but like yeah you know that but that was how many very... times have you played that conversation in your head in the years yeah. since and I've always said no right but it's like but. I could see how someone yeah. says yes. Yeah. Right. Of course. And that's why. This is and anyone, so important. anyone who who would say that they couldn't understand that. Yeah. Is not being truthful with. There. Yeah. They haven't they, been to that point, you know. And unfortunately, you know, I have been to that point, and luckily, I, I made the right decision. But a lot of folks don't make the right decision, and that's what keeps this cycle going. You know. The other thing I would share, um, there's an organization called Life Camp in uh, in New York, in Jamaica Queens. Um, leader is Erica Ford. She's amazing. And what they do is they focus on how do you bring wraparound services directly to the people who need it most. So usually about wraparound services. Yeah. So wraparound. So a lot of people in in communities that are most impacted by violence, if you go in there and say, well, "How do we reduce the violence?" They'll kind of look at you like you're crazy because violence is the side effect of everything else that's happening in that community. And I so it's like saying, yeah. so you're focusing on one thing, but you don't realize that hey, you know, our housing is messed up. The unemployment in this neighborhood is, is out of control. The dropout rate is out of control. You know, like the, the interpersonal conflict, the gambling, the drug dealing, all these other things are happening that are detrimental to our community. And yes, from time to time it bubbles up into violence, but you're focusing on violence and not focusing on the root causes. Mm-hmm. And so wraparound services is a concept of just making sure that we know there are services that can help with unemployment, that can help with substance abuse, that can help with, uh, you know, uh, truancy in, in, in schools, but those services typically are offered on some website or on some government Twitter, but not actually brought to the community and actually put in the hands of people who need it the and most. And so the idea of a life camp, you know, you're going to bring it to these people and yeah. try to, okay, I see what you're saying. And they even have like a mobile bus where they drive it in and they have, you know, a computer lab and everything and they bring it in and they say, look, we're going to get you whatever you need. And a lot of that, you know, it can't all be government, right? It could be nonprofits. Um, a lot of their they depend on nonprofits and the mayor's office and different resources, but but unfortunately, a lot of the communities impacted most by violence. There are so many other problems, and right. but there are solutions that exist. But folks are not bringing it to those areas and not bringing it in a way that's being effectively taken in. And I, I think in a lot of ways that's by design. You know, you could walk into a neighborhood 
it's being impacted by gun violence and see there's potholes everywhere and the light street lights don't work and the public housing has no air conditioning and the rec center has two chairs and like a little open floor but no no actual programming like mm -hmm. everything that you know a vibrant neighborhood deserves a quality neighborhood deserves more than likely will be lacking in a neighborhood that's being impacted by violence. And that happened before the violence came. When we talk about this holistic approach, I'm unfortunately brought back to what is my area of expertise, mm -hmm. which is national politics. And yeah. I think about, you know, for people who are, you know, we've been talking about the micro level, whether it's these neighborhoods and you're talking about, I can I know what's in my rec center, for example, in right. Lamont Riggs in, in DC. Hey, it is a good one. And I'm thinking and that's and I'm thinking, thank God, right? Like because yeah. I know and I see people using it and I use it. I, like, yeah. you know, and like I go to meetings there. Like that's I and so that to me is a good sign. And I think about that in a positive way. On the other side, the macro scale, yeah. I want to talk about people who are running for the kind of office where the only problems that land on that desk are the ones that are unsolvable, intractable, or at least they feel that way. And of yeah. course, I'm talking about this this primary for president. Now, you obviously have a pretty wide but focused niche of issues that you are involved with on a day-to-day -day basis. Have you seen anything from these 2020 candidates that you like or don't like? Is there anything, whether it's on the gun question, on the criminal justice reform question, on the police violence question, I know that there have been a lot of stuff, there have been a lot of moments where we've heard things from these candidates on these issues, yeah. and I've been gratified by it. What have you heard that you like and don't like? So I had the, um, the privilege of being at the 2020 Gun Safety Forum. I don't know if you had a chance to see that, but each candidate went through a, I would encourage everybody to watch that. They went through a 30 minute discussion and interview about gun violence and what their plan is and what they specifically would do. Um, and what they specifically hadn't done, you know, especially for people who are already in mayor positions and whatnot. Um, and it was very fascinating. I think the big thing I've realized is that each candidate does have some form of plan and seems invested and committed. And while that same, may seem small, if you look at last year or the year before that. Didn't, didn't exist. Didn't exist. Like talking about gun violence was you'd be lucky to get them to say anything on record. And Democrats have been scared about this since 94. Right. Because they know that since the assault weapons ban that they have lost one election after another. We go back to the NRA. We go back yeah. to the, the way this is institutionally rigged. And this is a difficult problem for Democrats. And this is, I feel like, the watershed moment. I think back to, to Obama shedding a tear at Sandy Hook right. when you were dealing with, with uh, your, your, your uh, tragedy here in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, your, your personal situation, and I was dealing with, uh, I was in the, the diplomatic room, I believe, at the White House watching him talk, and it's like, you know it wasn't getting any better. And, right. and I think for many people, there was a turning point there in saying, look, if, if, if six-year-olds dying isn't going to do it, then nothing is, and something has to change. Like, yeah. you just can't. So what, so I, I'm sorry, I, yeah, I, I wanted good. you to give a more general answer, and, I, and then I cut you off because I had to talk about me, because that's, no, no, that's the good. narcissism <laughs> no, of this that's, gig. <laughs> that's a really, really big moment, you know, and to remember that. And I think that's, and, and like I said, I think what's really inspiring is that each candidate on the Democratic side, and even Republican side, I would argue, are being, they're, you know, they're being put to the fire of, like, what are they going to do about this? I mean, Donald Trump has a position on, on yeah. guns. It's yeah. just not one that I, I mean, you probably don't think it's no. very good. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's and, got a position. <laughs> yeah, and what I worry about, too, is Republicans are doing a lot of, you know, they just keep throwing, like, mental health under the bus, and it's not just that. You know, it's, it's it, it, 
I, th- I really feel like if we just focus on that, we're going to miss the boat on how to reduce violence. Because again, 70% of the gun violence that happens is not a mass shooting. It's, it's inner city, person to person. It's either domestic violence, suicide, or it's communities of color. You know? and, and by the way, domestic violence and suicide are mental health problems. There, right. there are mental health components. Yeah. If you beat the crap out of the person you're with, you yeah. have a mental health issue. Right. If you're committing suicide or thinking about it, you have a mental health issue. Yeah. And we should be talking about mental health, but to, but to callously yeah. push it, it aside and say, well, we'll deal with it when we deal with it, th- th- that's not a serious right. response. Now, what I, what I, so some of the things I've seen I like. I'm, I'm going to try to not talk about specific candidates. But uh, how dare you? I know, I know, I know. You got a nonprofit uh, to worry about. Yeah, that. <laughs> right. Um, no, but I think what I what I was really excited to see is that some of the candidates are real have a real understanding of what violence intervention looks like, and how to prevent gun violence, um, and not just make this all about the gun industry and the gun lobby. Um, so I know you know one candidate pers- uh, specifically came out with a plan and said this is specifically how much money I would spend in programs to reduce violence in the country, um, and that was like. Huge, because investing in community-based um, violence prevention is, is a really big component of how we reduce violence. Who is that? No. Um, well, <laughs> a couple candidates have, have said it. In that forum, Joe Biden specifically had put that out there. Um, but a couple candidates did speak to it. And I know that Booker spoke to it directly, and uh, Castro spoke to it directly, which is great. Um, I do think that there is a huge focus on – I noticed there's a huge focus on licensing. Um, and how that's becoming a deal of who's what level of licensing. While I think it's important, I don't think that's that should be the thing that we. That, I don't think that should be the litmus test of how invested candidates are for on on reducing gun violence. I really think it needs to be how much are you willing to invest in preventing gun violence, and really putting a dollar on it because that federal funding is huge. Because a lot of the violence intervention programs I spoke of are heavily dependent on mayors or governors, and that shifts from year to year. And the funding shifts from year to year, and you'll have cities that lose funding on these programs for, for five or ten years because of political reasons. And that is not sustainable. Legislature changes yeah. color, yeah. and all of a sudden you've exactly. got a you get a red versus mayor. blue. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And, all, and funding evaporates. And what people don't realize with these programs, you, have a, you say you have a hospital-based intervention program, and you defund it for six years. Of course, the people are going to leave. And... The institutional knowledge is going to be gone, and you try to—you can't just throw money at it six years later. That means it's going to take another two or three years to get it back to where it was. So you've gone through eight years. And in the meantime, how many people have sat in a ho- in a hospital room the way you did exactly. for 21 days and had the question posed to them, "Do you want me to do something about this?" Yeah. And maybe they won't have uh, somebody who can be there and actually say, you know, do the right thing, or yeah. you know, yeah. here's some resources to help you get out of this hole because I've been down there before, you know, right. and I know, and I know it. Yeah, I can't even imagine thinking you can shut. It's not a spigot. You can't turn it off and turn it on, exactly. like any of these happening. federal pro or any of these local or federal programs. Yeah, I think the other thing I'm, I'm excited that everyone is uh, singing the same tune with universal background checks. I think that's critical, but I also think that every candidate needs to sing the same tune with um, research around gun violence. That's a huge, huge component. Is that there's no national federally funded research around the crisis of gun violence in America. This is something that at the end of the Obama administration there was some movement that would allow the CDC and right. and, and others to look at these questions. The Trump administration basically rolled that back almost immediately and yeah. said we're not going to allow that that money to go to that. This has been a bugaboo for for 
industry they, they've Ugly. wanted this for a long yeah I, I only have like five words that i talk about uh but the you know it was a the, the word of the day calendar you know it's uh but you know th this is something that the industry wants they don't want people to say they want the mental health to be to be the scapegoat but they right. don't want us to look at it and say well actually this is the number of people that are dying every year by yeah. by x or, or you know because and of here's because, how uh, and yes here's what we can do and here are some you know and that's needed. You know, I think that's what it's going to take before a lot of solutions I mentioned are, are implemented in a few cities across the country, but it's not seen as like a, a national standardized way to deal with violence. The you know, the national standardized way to deal with violence is policing right now. And that is not effective, as we're seeing. And so if we want to look at alternative solutions or ways to supplement the policing approach, there needs to be real research around it. The thing that gives me hope, and I hope people can feel this because you are a very effusive and positive person. And for somebody who yeah. works in the field that you work in, I'm imagining that that is, a, that is your sword and shield every day when you go in there because you, you seem to have that positivity. And when I hear you talk about these things, you sound hopeful that we're yeah. maybe turning a corner. I that am. is not the message that is being out there. Is that the message that you want people to leave with from this conversation? Because yeah. that is... That is a that is different than the national conversation that we're having no, right now. I'm I'm very hopeful, and maybe it's because I've seen how how low we've been. You know, uh, <laughs> it cannot get worse. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Greg know, Jackson, it cannot get worse. <laughs> that is the quote. Like I said, when I, when Sandy Hook happened and when I was shot, um, yeah, that's you know, a hell of a time. This was barely this was you know this was one of the most traumatic uh, events in American history, but there was like zero political talk coming out of it. But now we're looking at an era where. Every candidate has to come with not just a talking point, with a plan in writing on their website that's going to be drilled by, you know, drilled by the general public. Yeah, about. I people are going to watch it. They're going to yeah. read it. They're going to check them up on it. Yeah, I'm watching um, political campaigns this year in, in Virginia for the legislature. People are literally – their whole – their whole platform is gun violence. Those elections, by the way, are coming up in days, people. Yeah. In days, Virginia yeah. is. What, six days. It's 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 soon. Yeah. If you're hearing this conversation, it's soon. soon. So don't forget, Virginia. They like to have elections. I my uh, my brother-in-law works a lot in Virginia politics, and uh, I like to joke that that is one of the safest gigs yeah. uh, possible because there's always something happening. Primary yeah. election, like every I feel like every 45 days, there's a Virginia election. So there's <laughs> anyway, there is one coming up soon. Greg, I'm I'm so grateful, not just for the positivity, but for the real talk and for the, the conversation yeah. today. Greg Jackson is a National Advocacy Director, Community Justice Action Fund. They do a lot of work uh, reducing, trying to reduce gun violence, criminal justice reform on a national level. Greg, thank you so much for spending some time with me at the table. No problem, man. Thanks for having me and, uh, you know, help me get my Twitter followers up, man. <laughs> I, know I know you're a rock star out here.